2021 was a spectacular year of surprises in personal finance. Who would have thought inflation would take off, that housing could get even hotter, and that job hopping would be commonplace? So what's next? Today, we're asking four experts to tell us what some of the big stories will be in 2022. We'll talk about investing, housing, jobs, and travel. All the stuff you care about. Welcome to Stress Test, a podcast about personal finance for Gen Z and millennials. I'm Rob Carrick, personal finance columnist at The Globe and Mail. And I'm Roma Lutsu, personal finance editor at The Globe. So Rob, can we agree that 2021 was an unprecedented year in so many ways? Next level strange. That's how I describe 2021 in personal finance. So many things we haven't seen before or we've never seen this intensely. Mm-hmm. I mean, in my 15 years as personal finance editor, I've just never seen so many extremes and so much drama surrounding everything. I like the word drama there because that that is exactly how I describe the housing market, inflation, what's going on in the stock market, crypto, everything is dramatic. Nothing is subtle anymore. It's like getting hit over the head with a mallet. Mm-hmm. So we're living in extraordinary times. We agree about that. And in my mind, the question is, are we going to ever get back to normal? I mean, what will the new normal be? How long can this kind of uncertainty or anxiety last? I hate to even speculate on that because I think it could be quite a long time. You know, frankly, I think if we're still doing this podcast in 10 years, we'll still be talking about stuff that happened in the pandemic and the long tail effects of it. And um, I think, you know, people retiring 40 years from now, here's a hot take. I think their retirements could be affected by what has happened in the past 12 months. And returning to the theme of this particular episode of the podcast, what's going to happen in the next 12 months? In today's episode, we're talking to four experts about the big personal finance trends in 2022. First up, we'll speak with someone about the investing outlook for next year. That's up next. With free stock trading available and the pandemic driving markets higher, investing was hugely popular in 2021. It was unusual to say the least because young investors were in the thick of it. Also, meme stocks and cryptocurrency were front and center, and so was investing based on themes like electric vehicles and AI. Will this continue? To find out, I spoke with Rob Engen of the personal finance blog Boomer and Echo. Rob, we are asking personal finance experts around the country for their thoughts on what will be big personal finance or investing stories in 2022. What are your thoughts? You know, well, I think coming out of the pandemic, um, we might see a more normal stock market uh, where we see an actual correction and not maybe 60 or 70 new all-time highs. And perhaps that might either scare off or bore uh, new investors who are coming into uh, or just new to investing. Or, you know, if the the correction or crash is is, uh, sharp enough, we might see Uh, that scar new investors, uh, just much like it did in the dot-com crash in the early 2000s. Can we just talk for a minute about how abnormal 2021 was? Uh, How unusual was it from your point of view? Really unusual. I mean, beginning at the start of the year with the meme stock craze, uh, the GameStops and uh, AMCs and whatnot, just trading, you know, crazy levels, not anywhere tied to their, you know, price valuations. And uh, of course, cryptocurrency, uh, all the new coins coming out and different platforms where you can trade, um, trade coins, 
Bitcoin and Ethereum ETFs and things like that. So it was just a wild market. NFTs came on the scene. You know, for for new investors, it was this really exciting time. Um, whether they're learning about a space or just hearing hot tips from a friend or or uh, or their peers, and uh, maybe jumping into investing for the first time, and probably having some success at least early on. And so, uh, when I say maybe coming back to a more normal uh, stock market environment, um, we might see some corrections there. We might see investors get kind of scared off from those uh, early wins, and really a dose of reality that investing isn't all that easy uh, when you look at uh, it over the long term. You touched on something that I think we need to uh, to delve into a little bit and how unusual it is to have so much success as an investor uh, in one sort of one 12-month period. Um, have you ever seen a time when almost everything, of course, bonds are a notable exception, but almost everything else is shooting up in price? Have you ever seen the likes? Well, I think you can draw a lot of parallels to the dot-com era where uh, the bubble was inflating with these, you know, you heard the ubiquitous kind of pets.com, these companies that don't really have any sales or anything that are just uh, exploding in growth. And so, you know, I remember talking to work colleagues about they were students at that time or, or just new to the workforce and they were investing and having a great time and talking about their wins. You know, and then I asked them, okay, well, then what happened? Oh, well, I lost it all. Um, you know, and, and so, and so, you know, you can't help but draw parallels to this time where you have new investors, crazy new technologies and, um, and these early successes. But if you've had any skin in the game for longer than, you know, two, three, four years, uh, you know, that investing isn't that easy. And so I think the, the telltale sign is going to come to, or is going to come down to when we see a 10, 20, maybe 30% correction in the market. What does that do to test your resolve um, as an investor? Rob, what are your thoughts to help people not lose it all in 2022? Well, I think we just need to rein in expectations. Like, you know, in 2020, a balanced portfolio, you know, the tried and true 60-40 portfolio was a double-digit return. And, and that just doesn't happen. And so I'm pretty upfront with the way I invest and, and I'm 100% stocks, you know, across all my accounts. And, you know, five, eight years ago, that was seen as I I'd get questions like, you know, why don't you have bonds? You know, isn't that risky? And now it feels like a portfolio of GICs uh, compared to what other people have in their portfolios with uh, chasing meme stocks and, and the latest crypto coins. And so I think we just need a dose of reality to rein in some expectations. Uh, when I talk about normal stock market, that includes uh, that includes downs as well as ups. You know, the market isn't going to just continue uh, rising to all time highs at, at this nonstop clip. Uh, we need to see some more return to normal. And that hopefully will rein in expectations that like this stuff is hard. And, um, you know, that's why index investing really appeals uh, to you know, long term investors, because rather than trying to pick which hot stocks uh, are going to rise and, and which ones to avoid, uh, you can just buy everything and ride that uh, ride that wave. To wrap up, Rob, what do you suggest people do with the nice little portfolio of stocks that have made all kinds of money in 2021? What do you suggest they do heading into a year that could be a lot tougher? Well, I, you know, what I hope for 2022 is that, you know, this more return to normal, maybe you're going back to work, uh, maybe you're able to travel and go out more with your family. And so I think it's time to put away the day trading and, Put yourself into one of these nice uh, risk-appropriate portfolios that's uh, just passively tracking the market. 
Um, so you can put your gains in there. And um, my, my kind of rule of thumb, you know, I'm an emotionless robot when it comes to investing. So it's 100% total stock market and I don't have any room for playing around with cryptocurrencies and meme stocks. But I get that most people are human and they're wired to invest with fear and greed and, and competition in mind. And so, you know, I, I just suggest you, you know, carve out a percentage of your portfolio that you want and feel comfortable playing around with if you want some more excitement than a total stock market ETF. Put 90% of your portfolio in this risk-appropriate passive index tracking ETF and carve out 10% and have some fun with it. Uh, know that it could be money that you could completely lose. Uh, and if you have some wild gains, recycle those back into your main retirement portfolio and enjoy that success. I love it, Rob. Make 2022 the year to have less fun with your investments. <laughs> exactly. After the break, we'll dive into housing and how unaffordable homeownership has become for many first-time buyers. And why does renting still get such a bad rap among Gen Z and millennials? At the very start of the pandemic, there was a moment where people wondered if the housing market would crash. Instead, the opposite happened. Prices in Canada soared even higher. If you're a young Canadian, you might be looking at renting for the long haul. Our next guest, Preet Banerjee, says the biggest trend he's seeing is the changing attitudes towards renting. Here's part of our conversation. Let's get into it. 2021 was a huge year for housing. Housing has never been more expensive, and it feels like so many first-time buyers, certainly the ones without any kind of parental help, are looking at the market and asking themselves, how will I ever be able to afford to buy anything in Canada? What do you think will be a housing trend in 2022? Listen, in terms of the biggest trends that I could sort of stand behind with any type of confidence, it's just the changing perspective on renting. Part of it is because it just is something that so many more people are going to have to come to grips with. Uh, and, and others are going to see it as a responsible choice because the higher prices go, and if they really pull away, they get dislocated from even the increases in rent that we're seeing, it's just makes a lot of good financial sense to say, well, it actually makes more sense to rent. But part of the problem with that is you have to deal with so many people who strongly believe uh, that home ownership is the only way to go. So it's going to lead to a lot more anxiety for a lot of people. That's yeah. for sure. Okay, so let's dig into that. Why is there this persistent belief that renting is a second-class choice? Uh, cultural. Um, it's worked so well for so long. You've had entire generations who haven't really been exposed to big downturns in housing, so they don't, until you actually see it for yourself, you kind of see it in a history book, and it's not as real. It's a little bit more abstract. But if you take a look at you know sort of the cultural impact, some other major cities around the world, like Berlin, 80% of the population are renters. But they are actually seeing, you know, response to to what's been happening there, which is similar to here, and that is the financialization of housing. And so this has been happening for quite some time in Berlin, and it's been a, a social issue for such a long time in terms of affordability. And because so many people are renters, um, and the landlords are all corporate landlords, they've really pushed up the rents quite a bit. And so it became such an issue that it actually went to a referendum as to whether or not they should buy out a bunch of these 
condos and apartments and have it owned by the city and then rent it out to people at market or below market rates. And and this this vote, this referendum happened at the end of September in 2021, and it passed. I think the vote was 54% to 46%. And the proposal is that 240,000 properties, which is 11% of all the apartments in Berlin, get taken over by the city and rented out at below market rates. Now, whether or not that will actually happen is a second step. So that was just the referendum saying, city council, you should do this. They now have to decide whether they're not going to they're going to do this. But the reason it got to that point was because of the financialization, the level of investment in corporate landlords um, in the housing market. And what did the Bank of Canada just say? In their latest, uh, you know, uh, review is that you know we've always been worried about the level of household indebtedness, but now we're particularly worried about the investor landlord because we are seeing the financialization of housing, which everyone else has said yeah for a long time, but now it's officially in the Bank of Canada's statements, and so I wonder if this is laying the seeds for something that is going to become uh, a political hot potato, and. What we do know is that if you look at the size of the average down payment uh, gifted by parents to someone buying a house in Toronto, I think it was $130,000. So we've created this bifurcation in society, which is one of the, the, the issues that people have had about separating people into haves and have-nots. And this is, this is now happening. We're seeing it happen in, in sort of real time. And it's also leading to so many psychological issues to, con- to consider. So for example... Uh, there's now a term of uh, called homeowner's guilt. And that is when people who have bought houses now feel guilty because the rest of their friend groups cannot or have not bought houses and, and have not participated in that, in that homeownership um, increase in value. And so they feel guilty about this. I mean, what kind of world do we live in when you feel guilty about making a decision, which was a responsible decision for you, but because of the state of affairs of all the people around you, you feel guilty about that. I mean, we have such a crisis. It is a crisis now. You know, the the main criticism that we hear all the time, if you're renting, you're paying someone else's mortgage, you know, you're at risk of getting booted out at any point, your landlord can decide to sell. What do you say to people that are going to, you know, turn around and say, well, I want to own a home for those reasons? Yeah, well, you know, a, a lot of those narratives are built around, uh, as you know, uh, real estate is location, location, location. And so if you go into the U.S., um, it, it's often the case you'll find places where the rent is uh, higher than the mortgage payments, the cost of carrying a house, right? And so it really comes down to if you're trying to figure out what makes sense where you are, instead of using this blanket advice that renting is better or owning is better, you got to look at the dynamics of where you are. And the price to rent ratio is one of those key metrics to take a look at. Because in some cases, it's a no-brainer to rent. And in other cases, it's a no-brainer to own. And so we have to be really careful when we couch this conversation that we're we're not making blanket statements that one is always better than the other, because that is not the case. But I'll tell you, I'm a renter in the city of Toronto, and I'm going to be moving to London in the UK, and I will be a renter there. And part of the reason is flexibility and lack of stress. And, and I'll tell you the first pushback I always get from people is, yeah, but as a renter, you could get kicked out in the hassle of having to move. So first of all, how often do people get kicked out? When it happens, it sucks, yes. But does it happen every year? No. And if it does happen, what's my hassle? A couple thousand bucks in moving? 
uh, versus having to live with this idea that, you know, there could be a $15,000 imminent emergency repair just around the corner um, and, and what have you. So when people say, you know, look at all the other costs in the renting versus buying debate, and they say that renting is way more of a hassle. I'm telling you, I have not, I don't know what people are talking about. For me, and for a lot of people I talk to, renting has not been a hassle. It's been a stress reliever. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what are some other positives about renting, especially for young people? Uh, flexibility um, and the environment and climate anxiety. So let's tackle all of those. So flexibility. Let's say you buy a house on one side of the city, you get offered a job on the other side of the city. Most of the people are still going to commute at some point, even though work from home is now a thing. Are you going to take another job across the city if now your commute goes from 20 minutes to 90 minutes? And if you do, what impact does that have on the environment? And these are things that people think about. So your ability to uh, be mobile in the labor force, I think, is reduced if you're a homeowner. Will you take a job in another city or another country if it's offered to you when you are a homeowner? I think people will give it second thought. So that may not be good for your earning power because maybe you're limiting some of your choices. So that's one. Climate anxiety. So now we hear every couple of weeks some kind of Climate disaster, people are forced from their homes, incredible amounts of damage, questions about whether or not insurance will cover it or not. As a renter or a homeowner, it's going to suck if you're in that area and you're going to get displaced at least temporarily no matter what. But if you're a renter, you don't have that emotional burden of thinking, oh my God, that's my home. What am I going to do? You just, you know, it's still going to suck, but you just find somewhere else to go. But as a homeowner, it's going to be way more emotional. So there's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of benefits to to renting in terms of being flexible. Okay, we talked a lot about the anxieties, the guilt uh, associated with housing in Canada. What would you say to young people that are sitting on the sidelines now, they're sort of, you know, starting off their lives, they're maybe renting, and there's a real sense of, well, you know what, prices are just going up so much. And if I don't get in now, you know, a year from now, they could be up another 10 or 20%. And, and you know, this is my chance, even though I can't really afford it. How do you deal with that overwhelming sense of I'm getting left behind? Yeah, you got to take a step back and think of this all as a lifestyle choice and less as an investment. And part of it being a lifestyle choice is if you if you had the means to buy, and let's say that after you got into your new home, you have money left over at the end of the month to have a life and to build a buffer with your emergency fund and all that. And if you're in that position, then I would say, you know, do you want to be tied to home ownership? Then go ahead and that's fine. And once you get in, stop thinking about whether or not the house value is going to double or not. This is part of the lifestyle decision. On the other hand, if you find that you could get in, and you'd be so stretched after you got in that you would not have a life, even though you've got this asset that hopefully one day will continue to go up in value and make you very wealthy on paper, but you don't live your life because you don't have the cash flow to support yourself um, doing those things when you are arguably in the prime of your life. That's a lifestyle choice too. So the reality is... Um, there is no magic bullet answer that's going to solve this. This is creating a generation, um, multiple generations of people who are uh, negatively affected by what has been happening in housing prices. And I say this because now your parents, your grandparents are also feeling stress of, you know, 
I have my friends giving their kids and grandkids gifted down payments, and I am not able to do that. Am I a failure as a parent? And no, you're not. You're a victim of the financialization of housing. Now, one thing that strikes me is that this makes a lot of sense for people in their 20s. Does this work for people who are in their 30s and sort of potentially looking to start families? Yeah, I think it's a different consideration, right? Because then you're looking for long-term stability. Um, So now the question is, you know, do you have to buy a home so that you have stability? And I think people are now starting to challenge that as well out of necessity, because they would like to, and now they're well, you know, we can rent in, you know, a school zone that we want to, and we might have to move, but hopefully we can find another rental in that area or wait until we find a place that we want to buy and bolster up our finances a little bit more. So I don't know if if maybe people think, you know, well, we're going to have a kid, we have to buy right now. I don't know if you have to, uh, if that is the long-term goal, uh, that's that's fine, that's great, but you could, you know, rent until you are ready to do that as well. And just by nature of how much things cost, it takes decades, decades without assistance to to save up a down payment big enough to buy. So don't feel like you're a failure if you're thinking about having kids and you don't think that home ownership is on the horizon. That's okay. You'll make it work as long as you've got your plans in place and you're being responsible with your choices. If it happens that you become a homeowner when your children are five years old or 10 years old. That's the world we live in, unfortunately. When the pandemic forced people to work from home, a lot of Gen Z and millennials took a hard look at their work-life balance. They really started to question how their work fits in with other parts of their identity and life. It led to what's being coined the Great Resignation, where a record number of people are changing jobs and even career paths. I spoke with Erica Alini to find out more about this job hopping trend and if you should take advantage of it. Erica is the author of Money Like You Mean It, and she's also the national online money and consumer reporter at Global News. Here's what she had to say. Erica, we're asking personal finance people to tell us what they think the big trends will be in 2022. What will you be watching? One of the ones I'll be watching is uh, so-called job hopping, which means switching jobs often. Uh, And I'm curious to see if we're going to see more people switching jobs, in part just so they can keep ahead of inflation. It's interesting because in millennial and Gen Z personal finance, we hear a lot about the side hustle, that to get ahead, you have to have a side hustle, a second job, a second way of earning income. Now people sound like they're paying attention to the front hustle. How can I get some traction in my main job? And you're telling me that if I switch, I can do better. How? What? What? In what ways will I be better off financially if I job hop? So the thinking is that uh, when... As an employee, uh, you don't have a lot of uh, bargaining power uh, in many industries. But if you apply for a new job and then you know you're you're the candidate selected, they want to hire you. That's the one moment where you perhaps have a little bit more bargaining power. You've gone through a grueling recruiting process. You've come out of it victorious. Um, your employer maybe uh, your new employer may be a little bit more willing to get you to give you what you need and what you want uh, rather than if you just stay in your job and sort of ask for a raise okay let's say you are a job hopper what should be on your ask list obviously you want to make more money in your base salary what else is on the table 
So base salary, I would say, um, is always very important uh, right now, maybe more than ever, um, especially for young workers because of the way uh, inflation is going. But there's a lot of other things to think about. And uh, uh, one of them is um, work-life balance. Uh, so vacation, um, the predictability of your schedule. And I'm hearing that this is becoming more and more important. I think this is an impact of the pandemic. I've been hearing it from uh, job recruiters. I've also uh, seen it in a, in a recent survey by the Bank of Canada that this was becoming increasingly important. Um, I think people have really um, come to appreciate the importance of work-life balance. But then you should also look, obviously, at... Uh, uh, benefits, both in terms of health benefits, uh, your pension, um, bonuses, uh, the uh, ability to improve, um, you know, training opportunities. Um, there's all kinds of things that should be part of the negotiation that go beyond uh, your pay. You know, I've been writing about millennials in the job market since uh, since just after the, the great financial crisis. And the big story was millennials having to move home because there weren't employment opportunities. They were going back to school. They were in the gig economy. Now, finally, they have some leverage. How long do you think this is going to last? Is this a short-term opportunity that people really have to exploit? I wonder about that. I do wonder. I have to say, I started out, uh, I'm a, an older millennial myself. I um, graduated right smack in the middle of the financial crisis. And I remember it was 2016 when I finally started to, when I told myself, oh, this is what a, a, a normal job market looks like, you know, <laughs> it's not a miracle where you actually get a job. Um, so this feels very different and it feels like a real opportunity for people to improve their job prospects and improve their income. And I don't know how long it's going to last. And looking ahead, um, so um, I'm thinking we're, we're already seeing um, urgent job searches increase. This was something that uh, indeed the job search site uh, uh, flagged uh, a few days ago um, as um, the uh, pandemic income supports wind down. We're starting to see a, a higher share of people saying that they're urgently looking for a job. So more people are getting in there. Um, and then we also have the pandemic supports for businesses winding down. So I'm wondering whether that will lead to some people being laid off simply because the wage subsidies are going away. Um, also possible that we'll see some uh, more uh, small business bankruptcies and small businesses are you know uh, a big chunk of the employers out there and then we're ramping up immigration already so i don't know if this um tight job market that we're seeing right now i don't know how long it's gonna last and so if i were a job seeker i would take my chances now Traveling domestically or abroad might not be something you've done since the pandemic started. But with more people vaccinated and money to spend, the travel industry has started to bounce back. But as we know with COVID, the only certainty is uncertainty. A few days before the discovery of the new COVID variant, Omicron, I asked travel expert Barry Choi what he sees unfolding in 2022. So let's start off by asking you, what travel trends do you think will be big in 2022? A few different things. I think the biggest thing is as people become more comfortable with traveling again, uh, we're going to see a lot more of dynamic pricing. And what I mean by that is, 
you know, when there's more demand, prices will go up. And when there's less demand, prices will go down. That has always existed. But now that you people haven't been able to travel for the last two years, they're really starting to notice it. So one good example is back in July, you know, there was sites all over saying, say, hey, you can fly across the country one way for 120 bucks. Uh, but back then, you know, there's only single vaccinations. Now that everyone's vaccinated, everyone wants to travel and they're looking at prices around the holidays. So like, hey, why is it three, four hundred dollars each way? Why has it gone up? It's like, well, guess what? Everyone wants to travel right now. That's why. So that's one of the biggest trends I will say moving forward. And the other trend we probably want to talk about is bucket list travel. Again, people haven't been able to travel for about two years. They're ready to spend their money. They're ready to go to those destinations that they've been holding off for a long time. Because as we've quickly learned, travel can be taken away from us at any moment. Okay, so let's dig into that a bit. You know, as you mentioned, like many Canadians, we stuck close to home. A lot of people are vaccinated. Kids are only getting the green light to get vaccinated now. When you're saying that people will start to travel uh, with a lot of enthusiasm now, are you seeing them traveling within Canada, going international? Well, I think over the last year or so, you know, ever since the whole pandemic broke out, everyone was sticking close at home. You know, that was great for Canada's economy to a certain extent. Domestic travel, staycations, not a bad thing. You know, I'll admit uh, for many, many years, I avoided going to BC because it was actually cheaper for me to fly to Europe. Uh, well, this is the first time I actually got very excited to go to BC. And honestly, it was actually great. I had a great time with my daughter. I didn't have to worry about vaccinations because at the time, the COVID rates were relatively low. So it was a great opportunity for me to visit within Canada. But, you know, moving forward, I think depending on the situation, people who have young children who are just starting to get their first dose of the vaccine or no vaccines at all, they're probably going to still avoid international travel. I certainly don't blame them. Uh, That said, I, I do believe that a lot of destinations out there really have a good job or handle of how COVID is being handled. Uh, I would argue better restrictions than Canada ever had in place. So it is safe to travel. But again, as a parent, I totally get it. If you don't feel safe, just don't do it. Okay. What are some destinations where people can find value? Uh, You know, there's a lot of value and it really depends on what you want. I think a lot of uh, Caribbean destinations are offering a lot of value because, you know, unfortunately, those countries depend so much on tourism. Most of their economy is based on it. So a lot of resorts are are willing to bring customers back offering, you know, fifth night free discounts on packages, free upgrades, free COVID testing. They'll get they'll give you anything to get you in there. Uh, I don't want to touch too much about this, but if you want to cruise some great deals on cruises right now. But also, you know, think about pre-pandemic. Like any destination that was cheap before is still going to be cheap now. Now, there are some extra costs associated with travel right now. We had been uh, thinking about doing a uh, trip to the States and uh, the COVID tests were quite pricey. So let's just for argument's sake, use Canadian numbers right now, right? If you're going to take a PCR test within Canada, roughly speaking, it's going to cost you about $150, right? So even though it's cheaper in some U.S. states or some island destinations, family of four, you're looking at about $600 in additional costs. And that could be each way, right? Like depending on where you're going. So all of a sudden you're looking at at about $1,200. Any savings you had from COVID shop or savings is all of a sudden costing you more. So, you know, that's always something to be aware of for sure. But again, you know, we talked about domestic travel. There's a huge opportunity within Canada. You don't need to have that 
test. Uh, you, do, you do need to be fully vaccinated. I had to think about that for a second because the rules are constantly changing. So I still think there's a lot of opportunities uh, to, to travel for, for quote unquote cheap, um, you know, especially during the whole COVID-19 pandemic. A lot of Canadian cities, you, you know, Ottawa, Montreal, Vancouver, even now Quebec City, they offered a lot of packages for, for Canadian travelers. So like some of them were like, hey, book book one night, you get a free $25, $50 gift card. Uh, so there's a few tricks there. If you book like four separate nights at four different hotels, you could stack those gift cards. So there's always tricks to be had. You just got to read the fine print. So Roma, what are you looking for in 2022? I'm really curious to see what happens with the future of work. Um, this is going to impact all of the Canadians who have left the big cities where their jobs were, who are counting on working remotely. We now know that some of those jobs, you know, the office work can be done in cities other than where you, uh, where your office was. So we're recording this podcast from Host Studios. There's been a huge shift. What will the future workplace look like? Will workers start getting called back into offices or will young workers drive this change and insist on flexibility to keep working from home or remotely? I mean, this has huge implications for where people can live. That's one thing I'll definitely be keeping an eye on. What about you? I'm just wondering how our standard of living is going to do in 2022. You know, inflation is is really biting into people's finances. Um, we've seen huge gains in stocks and housing. Can that continue? My big question is, at the end of 22, are we going to be better off or worse off than we are today? Thank you for listening to Stress Test. This show was produced by Amy Chan and Zara Kozema. Audio engineering and editing by Kyle Fulton. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you to guests Rob Engen, Preet Banerjee, Erica Alini, and Barry Choi. If you like what you heard, give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We're taking a little break in our production to spend time with our families over the holidays. In the meantime, if you haven't listened to our older episodes, now would be a great time to do so. We'll be back in 2022 with our next episode. It's all about the lives of renters and where they are on the road to becoming homeowners, if that's still their plan. You can find Stress Test at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And find us at theglobeandmail.com, where we cover all things financial. Thanks for listening. Have a great and safe holiday. See you all in the new year.